My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 29, The War God. In 2015 BCE, the Kingdom of Egypt stood poised for war once again. Although the divisions and civil conflicts of the First Intermediate Period were now a memory, the ruling household could not sit on its laurels just yet. Montuhotep II, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, had reunified his kingdom, but it was time to reassert Egyptian martial glory and supremacy abroad. In the eastern deserts and the Nubian south, foreign kingdoms and tribes offered threat to Egyptian traders and officials. For the king to assert and fulfil his role as protector of Ma'at, these threats had to be removed. The army was ready, its veteran soldiers poised to seize plunder and captives on behalf of the king. But to successfully defeat these people, Montuhotep needed the blessing of his namesake deity, Montu, the war god. At Thebes, the overseer of troops, Intef, recorded his involvement in a rare campaign into Palestine. In a single surviving scene, Egyptian troops are displayed advancing against a walled fortress, with enemy troops atop the walls. The Egyptian bowmen lay down covering fire, while, incredibly, a regiment of troops use scaffolding to climb the walls and engage the enemy directly. It is an utterly unique scene in Egyptian monuments of this period, showing aggressive, determined assault on a fortified town. For modern historians, it is proof that the Egyptians were capable of sophisticated siege warfare, and used it to push hard against enemy positions. The scene is only a fragment of what must have once decorated Intef's splendid tomb, but it gives the tantalising suggestion that after conquering the north and defeating the house of Keti, Montuhotep actually advanced into the Sinai and Palestine regions. The attack would have been more of a raid than a war of conquest, intended to show Egyptian power and take plunder back to the Nile Valley. It would be nearly 600 years before the Egyptians took that important step of establishing direct government in Palestine and imposing their will upon a territorial empire. Montuhotep was in it for the glory, not the administrative headache of conquest. The next movement after this foray into Palestine was eastward in a series of raids to prepare for a larger campaign to the south. In a rock inscription found in Lower Nubia, an Egyptian named Chemehu left a record of his service under King Montuhotep. Quote, I started to fight in the army in the time of Nebhebetre Montuhotep II, when he travelled south to Buhin. 
he crossed the whole land to kill the Asiatics of Jati when it would come against him, and Thebes was at war. It was the Nubians who fought. Then Montuhotep overthrew Jati, with the result that he raised his sails and journeyed southward. End quote. The small rock inscription of this man is one of the few tantalizing clues we have to Montuhotep's wartime policy. Pushing southward past Elephantine, Montuhotep made a foray into the eastern desert, identified as Jati, in order to subjugate nomadic tribes living in the region. The attack had two purposes. On the one hand, it secured the eastern desert for traders, and helped protect Egyptian access to the Red Sea. On the other, it removed one of the barriers to mining operations which could be sent into Nubia. Such expeditions had, in the time of Pepi II, brought back gold for the ruling household. Regaining access to this source of wealth was crucial if the king wanted to expand his dominion and pay for the lavish temple he was building at Thebes. This was also not yet a war of conquest, merely a policing action designed to remove threats to Egyptian activity. Montuhotep's soldiers, many of them raised by those veterans who had served in the war of reunification, were spoiling for a fight. A quick war in the east gave them that, and some experience to boot. Scenes of this war seem to have been recorded in the Deir al-Bahari temple, which we visited in episode 27. Small fragments of the decoration survive today, showing soldiers grappling with foreign enemies. Bowmen stand ready to fire, and sailors aboard a ship remind us that many of Egypt's armies travelled southward by ship for faster transport. In another fragment, an Egyptian soldier grasps the raised ankle of a black-skinned warrior. He lifts his weapon, likely an axe or a club, in the one hand, prepared to break his enemy's leg, or strike at his head. When complete, the scene was likely one of one-on-one combat rather than full-scale pitched battle. Images of large battles are a feature of the New Kingdom, when Egypt expanded into Palestine and carved out an empire. In this later period, combat tends to be presented on the large scale, but in the Middle Kingdom it was small, between individuals. It's not to say battles didn't happen, of course, merely that the Egyptians still thought on the small scale when they carved and decorated tombs. But Montuhotep's campaign in the east was just a prelude to a much larger one, soon to be led into Lower Nubia. The Nubian kingdom at Kerma, also known as the Sea Group by archaeologists, had emerged in the first intermediate period. Its borders are no longer known, but it seems to have dominated the region around Kerma, likely controlling traffic on the Nile and into the eastern and western deserts. It represented a threat. Not to Egypt itself, but to the interests of Egyptian traders and expeditions sent from Thebes. And despite its small size, Kerma was certainly capable of defending its own communities in warfare. To be sure of victory, Montuhotep needed to make several preparations well in advance of the campaign. The first of these we have already seen, an extensive reorganization of the kingdom's administration 
and a centralization of authority under the royal household. Such measures gave Montuhotep a secure hold on Egypt, one that would easily survive the months of campaigning he was about to embark upon. The second preparation was a military one, involving the fortification and garrisoning of Elephantine. An island at the southern limit of Egypt, Elephantine had acted as a trading post and small administrative centre since the early days of the Old Kingdom. Montuhotep readied the island to protect his southern border while he was absent from Egypt and to protect trading expeditions heading into Nubia. The third preparation was the careful invocation and purification before the king's patron deity, the war god Montu. Although we call him Montu today, the god's name was probably pronounced Menchu or Montu in the ancient language. It is a homophone with the Egyptian word for Bedouin or nomadic wanderer, giving the god the aspect of one who travels the desert. At home in the sands and the wind, Montu, perhaps naturally, came to be embodied by a falcon. The principal cult centre of Montu was at Medamud, a town north of Thebes, where a temple to the god may have been constructed as early as the Old Kingdom. In later centuries, Montu would come to be associated heavily with the desert regions of Upper Egypt and Lower Nubia, and he became a patron deity of Thebes, Armant, and several fortresses in the Nubian riverlands. The god even appeared occasionally in the pyramid texts, though without more than a passing reference, it is hard to know what role he played in the Old Kingdom pantheon. By the time of Montuhotep II, the god Montu was a war deity, strong of arm and victorious in battle. Like Horus or Re, Montu represented the grace and majesty of the birds of prey which coast on the thermal winds near to the Nile River. It is not hard to see how these birds, who circle and coast along the breeze in search of food, came to be associated with nomadic tribes and migratory peoples. Perhaps fittingly, given his near-identical appearance to Ray, one of Montu's primary consorts was a feminine version of Ray named Ra'it Tawi. The name simply means Goddess Ray of the Two Lands. Not much is known of this goddess beyond this fact, but her appearance may relate to the fact that, over time, Montu came to be seen as an Upper Egyptian equivalent of Ray. The cult centre of Ray, Heliopolis, was nearly identical in the Egyptian language to the centre for Montu, and the two were perhaps seen as dual aspects of the same god. At the same time, their speed and ferocity in attack, diving from the heavens to scoop up prey in sharp talons, were the perfect embodiment of the victorious Egyptian king and of vicious Egyptian campaigning. If a lion is an image of power and ferocity, the falcon is an image of speed, epitome of the strike hard and fast doctrine of warfare. It was this image that Montuhotep sought to invoke in his war with Nubia. 
a campaign that would take him beyond Egypt's southern limits and into lands which had not seen an Egyptian soldier for nearly 200 years. The campaign into Nubia advanced some time around Montuhotep's 40th year on the throne. Assisted by his chancellor, a man named, of all things, Keti, the king's army pushed southward past Elephantine, advancing into Lower Nubia and the territory of the Kerma kingdom. This was the land traversed by such figures as Weni the Elder and Hakuf, who were now centuries dead. Although Pepi II had wielded great influence in this region, commanding the subservience of Nubian princes, this legacy was but a distant memory. Egyptian soldiers, advancing by ship and on foot, were entering a difficult land. Rapids and cataracts made sailing upriver difficult, and narrow cliffs made the journey on foot a dangerous exercise in foreign territory. But the king and his army were not without some advantages. Among the ranks of his Egyptian warriors, Montuhotep commanded a large number of Nubian mercenaries. If any of these had been born in Nubia itself, we're not exactly sure, but they would have acted as guides for the king's army as it moved into hostile lands. The territory south of Elephantine, up to Kerma itself, is a difficult one to traverse. The Nile Valley narrows at several points and makes easy advances slow. As it stands, we lack many of the details of this war. That it was successful for Montuhotep is clear, and although he did not seek to establish a permanent administration or garrison in Nubia, he defeated the Kerma warriors and removed the kingdom as a threat. What this entailed exactly, we do not know. The C-group culture continued to flourish as far as archaeology can tell us, so it's unlikely that Montuhotep committed genocide or attempted to exterminate his foes outright. But if later examples of Egyptian campaigning methods are any indication, it would have been a bloody affair nonetheless. The Egyptians were inordinately fond of taking captives, in huge numbers. But when necessary, they were quite happy to take the severed hands of their defeated foes. Such a method helped to count the dead, in order to list them properly on temple walls and in the royal annals. It may seem bloody, but it was practical. And if nothing else, the Egyptians were a pragmatic people, and their mathematicians were in a brutal business. The campaigns of Montuhotep II into Palestine, the Eastern Desert, and the Nubian lowlands were not the last of his accomplishments. However, they do mark the end of what is recorded for his reign. By the year 2009 BCE, the great ruler's time on the throne was coming to an end. In the course of an immensely long career, Montuhotep had seen his power expand from a small confederacy centred on Thebes to a mighty and reunified kingdom. The conquest of Lower Egypt had spelled the end of the First Intermediate Period and demonstrated a return to a state 
of undisturbed Ma'at. He had ruled for fifty-one years, but his time had now come. And it was in this year that he passed from the mortal world. The throne was left to his son, a mature man named Seneferkare Montuhotep III, under whose reign the prosperity brought to the kingdom by his father would flourish even more strongly. At Deir el-Bahari, Montuhotep II had celebrated his splendour and achievements in a magnificent temple complex built in a secluded valley. It was here that his son buried him, and the king could rest taking the form of Osiris to begin his stewardship of Egypt's fertility cycle. Among the ranks of his predecessors, Montuhotep could sleep soundly, knowing that he had fulfilled his duty as king of Upper and Lower Egypt, and become a name to live forever in the annals of the great rulers. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.